hard to believe the drama is over. Tragedy struck downtown this morning. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this pod series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Good evening, everybody. I'm your host, Lucy, and today you are listening to the very first podcast in the Je Nicole pod series, where we will be discussing our namesake, Je Nicole, and the naval strategy corresponding. Today, I'm joined by Professor Jeff Till from King's College London. Welcome, Jeff, and thanks so much for joining us on Je Nicole. Hi there. Okay, so today, as you know, we're going to be talking about um, the Je Nicole uh, French naval strategic concept. So it was developed in the 19th century by a faction within the French Navy that aimed to undermine Britain's supremacy of the sea through technological advancement and I guess what we would call today asymmetric tactics. Um, if you would agree, Jeff, would you be able to just explain for our listeners um, a little bit more about the basic concepts of the Je Nicole? Yeah, yeah, you summed it up actually quite quite well there, Lucy. But basically, it was the French trying to exploit what they thought were the opportunities presented to them by new technology to try and reverse the kind of natural advantage that they thought the British in particular had over them because the British could concentrate all of their resources or, or most of their resources at any rate on naval spending where the French had to divide their defence spending much more evenly towards the army. And so they thought this natural disadvantage which had played out over the centuries in pretty near continuous defeat um, at the hands of the British could actually um, be reversed if they made the best use of new technology. And the new technology they had in mind was a torpedo boat. Um, the new torpedo boat they hoped would be able to prevent a major blockade, a naval blockade of their 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 light forces, and that that would give them the opportunity to attack the British at what they thought was the British's really weak point, which was their reliance on commerce. So rather than trying to engage in a probably futile battle for command of the sea or sea control, as we would call it these days, um, they would try and ignore that almost altogether and go directly for the jugular as it were, of, of, of the British um, system by um, using their torpedo boats um, to evade any blockade that the British tried to put on and then go out directly and threaten British commerce. And they thought that this would have huge impact because the British were, after all, a nation of shopkeepers. And so any attack on their trade uh, would create panic, political turmoil and a rapid um, you know, change of of British policy. So that, broadly speaking, was the aim. Use new technology to develop, change the, change the rules of the game, if you like, so that um, it would give much more advantage to the French than they had historically. 
And I guess um, the 19th century, we saw a lot of innovation which directly impacted Navy. So we're talking steam propulsion. Um, obviously, we have the dreadnoughts and super dreadnoughts. Um, we also had the um, first self-propelled torpedoes and things as well. So amidst all of this really successful uh, naval innovation, would you be able to highlight in your view why the Je Nicole was and still is considered largely unsuccessful? Well, basically, the problem was um, that they were assuming that technology, if you like, has a permanent consequence um, in the sense that um, it produced a challenge to which there would not be an answer. And the problem was that they encountered was that the technology kind of evens out the score, if you like, by producing answers to the problems it poses. Effectively, what happened was that the French did indeed produce whole classes of torpedo boats, which looked very effective, in fact. Um, but the British took the threat seriously, and so did other technologists around the world, actually, and came up with the answer to it, if you like, which was basically speaking a rather larger vessel uh, that would be able to take on the torpedo boat effectively at the torpedo boat's own game. Uh, they call them torpedo boat destroyers, effectively TBDs. Um, they were still called in the First World War, actually, but, but gradually the TB bit of it was dropped and they simply became known as destroyers. So effectively, yeah, you're saying that the technology that produces the problem also produces the solution. And so technology was not, if you like, kind of permanently um, going in one direction. It could be countered um, by other technological developments. So that was one reason why it failed. The second reason why it failed eventually, eventually, um, after about 20 years, I think, really, um, was that it was uh, a strategy for the French that was specifically aimed against the British um, but the problem was that the French had lots of other problems as well, maritime problems that had little to do with the British. Like, for example, how to maintain the empire, how to extend the French empire, how to fight Germany or, or, or Italy or, or Austria in, in the Mediterranean, all of these sorts of things. And the Jeunicole idea didn't really seem to apply to any of them. And then, of course, in due course, in 1904, the British suddenly became allies. So the whole point of having a strategy that was aimed against your major friend, if you like, didn't seem to make much sense. So a combination of those two things. Yeah, okay. So that, that makes a lot of sense, I guess, uh, as a naval strategist, if your strategy is too narrow and your entire fleet is built around one adversary and then, for instance, we had the British and the French Entente, then that will kind of destroy exactly what you've built um, your whole fleet around. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And I also like uh, the point that you make about the reciprocal relationship between innovation and then, um, you know, providing the, the counter innovations to that. And I mean, we see that even to this day across all kinds of like the Navy, Army, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one only has to look at, um, you know, the war in the Middle East where we see, you know, for, for one example would be, you know, IEDs, et cetera. Um, and we just, we constantly see that innovation mm. and then counter innovation again. So that's a really good point. But going back to the Jonah Cole and the historical context. So for some of our um, listeners who may not, uh, be as fully versed in it. So 
we're talking about if we go back to Napoleon the Third, so he proclaimed the Second Empire, I think. 1852 but the empire was then defeated in the franco-prussian war and then after that came the third republic um and then after that it was humiliated by great britain during the fashoda crisis of 1898 did you want to provide a bit of background into the fashoda crisis and uh if you think that had any impact as well on the jeune Nicole? well it kind of underlined the point that the French were permanently, if you like, divided in who they thought the main threat was. Um, there were various schools of thought. Now, one thinking, if you like, globally, thought that the major threat was was obviously uh, the British, um, because they were particularly um, divided over the future of ownership, if you like, of um, Africa and a kind of natural imperial rival in that part of the world and also in, in Southeast Asia as well. But on the other hand, there was the proximate threat just over the border of Germany, um, particularly the uh, loss of Alsace-Lorraine and all of that uh, after the Franco-Prussian War and the possibility that somehow this kind of... Uh, unfair consequence of losing that war needed to be reversed at some stage and that they instead of thinking globally if you like France needed to think regionally and needed to think about what the situation in its own backyard was rather more importantly to that so there you had the kind of international background that itself was bifurcated um, so it produced two sorts of sets of major uh, operational priorities that the French ought to um, do something about. And in a way that this debate about maritime strategy uh, for France simply reflected the fact that strategically France was in this bind as well. And it, you know, it the two approaches were kind of incompatible. You, you had, first of all, a country thinking globally um, and, and following one path that seemed to make sense. Um, on the other hand, you had it thinking regionally, following another path in, in the development of his navy that also seemed to make sense. And, and that was a problem. And, you know, I can think of a sort of modern analogy of that as well. Like, for example, in the UK at the moment, there seem to be schools of thought that say, well, we really ought to focus on global Britain and all of that, um, where another school of thought says, well, what about the Russians? Um, it's exactly the same situation. And that gets back to the point you were making a little bit, uh, a little while ago about if you come up with a strategy that's only aimed at one adversary, you stand in permanent danger of being outflanked by destiny, if you like. And this is something that, you know, I think our American colleagues are, are, are slightly concerned about at the moment because there's so much focus on what do we do about China and that there are lots of other things happening as well. But if you focus too much on doing something about China, that you may be neglecting other things that you should be doing as well. And so that's a kind of permanent dilemma that people um, in the strategy making business have. Do you focus on one priority the most dangerous or do you focus on the priority that's most likely 
um, you know, do try and maintain a balanced sleep that means that you can deal with everything to some degree, or do you focus and specialize on one threat that means that you can really, you can do one thing really well. So it's a kind of permanent dilemma. And I think, you know, France in the late 19th century simply reflected that unavoidable problem that strategy makers have. And you talked about the bifurcation between two different schools of thought in France. And I'm curious, um, because we were, we were in the middle of the 19th century, there was a naval arms race um, going mm. on. So what role did money play in that internally within France? Um, if you had someone like Olbe, um claiming that France could render an effect without having to spend all that money on capital ships, uh, what role did that have uh, internally as well? Yes, I mean, that, that's a permanent, obviously, a, a big apparent argument. The argument that the new technology is not only providing you with opportunities that are completely novel and that will uh, dismay your adversary by being so asymmetric, but they're also cheaper. Um, but this is so often an illusion. Um, the argument that you can buttress your strategic points by an economic point that says that, oh, by the way, this new strategy that we're coming up with is not only um, strategically very uh, promising, but it also means that we can get more bang for our buck, if you like, by, um, by virtue of the fact that it's so cost effective. Um, the problem is that kind of historically, um, it doesn't turn out to be quite so cost effective when you look at it more closely, um, because it turns out that you, you know, the technology comes up with some of the answers, if you like, and you have to respond to the answers, and then it gets more and more expensive. And I think the best example of this kind of problem, which is a universal one, is the old argument that happened round about, oh, what? 30 years later, between bombs and battleships, uh, between the bomber and the battleship, you know, where you had the air power enthusiast saying, well, good Lord, one aircraft only costs such and such, but a battleship costs so and so. And with three aircraft, we can sink a battleship. And then you start going into the calculations a bit longer and you work out that in order to have enough bombers to do it, you have to maintain a whole number of bombers, not just three, if you like, you have to maintain you have to build factories, you have to build air bases and all the rest of it. And once you started doing all that sort of stuff, you find that the economic gap between the new technology and the old technology is nothing like as great as the enthusiasts, enthusiasts argue that it is. And that is so very common. Um, that I think that's a kind of recurring pattern um, in maritime development or in military development, in, in fact, that um, we historians like constantly to find. So I think that is one part of the argument. The other part of the argument is a kind of moral ethical one. It's basically saying what we shouldn't allow our policy to be directed by are, if you like, the French version of the military industrial complex. That just because big shipbuilders were making loads of money by building big ships, we shouldn't allow them too much political influence. And so in a way, that was another argument that was sometimes deployed um, in defense of the torpedo boat builders rather than the battleship builders, if you like. But again, that's 
that's an argument that constantly recurs that we we should actually have a strategy that makes sense strategically we should not be determined by what the technologists um, say they can build so you need an a strategy led um maritime strategy if you like rather than a technology led maritime strategy so you know there it's a very complex issue but fundamentally the importance of the sort of economic dimension of it always always takes a, a big role yeah and i guess um yeah not being solely driven by technology um, or economy as well, but um, making sure that the um, strategic objectives is at the forefront. Um, I guess it would have been an interesting point in history when Jonah Cole was being developed as well, because at the same time, we see a lot of that same arguments between technology and economy that were happening within Germany with the the Navy laws and also um, within Britain as well with the Naval Estimates. think back to Albay and um, his development of the torpedo boats, I did read somewhere that he did actually test the torpedo boats and he, um, I think it was called large-scale exercises at sea to test the ability of the torpedo boats under realistic conditions. Now, how successful were they and any, how successful was he in admitting when they they didn't work. Is that what led to the period where Jean Nicole fell out of popularity temporarily? Or I wouldn't say it didn't work, um, in the sense that um, it's a challenge that had to be responded to. Um, it provided another axis of attack. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that you could simply. Um, you know, as a conventional maritime strategist in the Royal Navy, for example, could say, well, we can deal with this. It's not a problem. Let's go on pretty much doing things as we always did. They took it, the Royal Navy took it seriously. There was something in the argument. And it was an argument, if you like, for the development on the British side of a, a rather more diverse balanced fleet that would indeed contain elements that were specifically able to deal with the attack on the, the heavy metal, if you like, the, the main battle fleet, uh, by lighter forces, whether those lighter forces eventually were aircraft or submarines, destroyers, or even torpedo boats. So in other words, what I'm saying is that um, you... Uh, the, the, the Jernicol did not fail in the sense of coming up with an answer that was completely ridiculous. They came up with something that needed to be taken seriously. But the conventional response would be that, yes, we take it seriously, but we can still proceed with our business by developing a more balanced fleet. So I think that effectively um, it's uh, something that, what I might call conventional naval strategy absorbs and it becomes part of a wider, rather more diverse balanced fleet that is the answer. But that mere fact kind of underlines the point that there was, after all, something in the operational case presented by the Jernicole. It could not be completely dismissed. For an analogy, a, a contemporary analogy, I you would have to look at you know what's happening in the Gulf at the moment um, between um, you know the 
the small attack craft that the Iranians are sort of exercising um, and regard as a, a major threat to US carriers and, and other big surface combatants, for example. Uh, I, very few people, I think, in the US Navy or conventional navies would entirely dismiss that threat. It's something we have to do something about. But having being able to contain that threat to the um, to a degree that we can go on doing what we have to do does not mean that we can't go on doing what we really do have to do, if you like. So it, it's, it simply becomes a threat that you can contain. It's not a threat that doesn't exist, as it were. There's a, a crucial difference between those two things. And I think what um, the various exercises that the Journey Cole tried out simply underlined the point that there was something in it and it could not be entirely dismissed and it needed to be taken seriously and answers to it needed to be found, which the Royal Navy thought they had found. Yeah, and I guess um, that brings us back to that point where it, it actually made some valid arguments and created uh, an issue that needed to be addressed. Yeah. And so that's something where, as you say, a balanced fleet um, has a capacity to respond to. Mm. But as the technological innovator, if you've put all your innovative eggs in that basket, that's that's where the problem lies. Yeah. I also um, was reading uh, about, uh, you know, our most preeminent Alfred Thayer Mahan <laughs> and um, his influence of sea power on history. And he was actually influenced to write that book in part by some of these developments that were happening in Europe. Is that correct? Um, I know his second work also talked about the French Revolution, but would you be able to talk to us a bit about that? Um, yes, basically speaking, there were so many de technological developments happening in the 19th century that there was genuine, genuine doubt about whether the traditional um, ideas that were knocking around in navies still had relevance and where the future was going. I think one of the major reasons was for Mahan writing what he did was simply a reflection of the fact that there was so much uncertainty about um, the importance of sea power and about the directions that it would take in the future. And this was particularly the case in the United States, where um, the idea of going for command of the sea in the traditional British sort of style of open ocean warfare, if you like, was not very well developed um, because of the way that American, the American Navy had, you know, practiced over oh, through, the, through the 19th century since independence, in fact, was not the conventional form um, that the French and the, and the British and other major mar maritime powers had developed. And so there was a lot of scepticism in the United States about the extent to which it was necessary really to invest in the Navy. Mahan thought that was wrong. Mahan thought that the, uh, the United States was the natural heir, if you like, to the kind of traditions that um, he thought were espoused by the British. And his fundamental purpose was to try and persuade the United States. And, and this was a series of books specifically aimed at an American audience. This is the point uh, I would underline. Um, and so effectively, he was trying to justify what we would now call the conventional approach to maritime strategy and its applicability and importance uh, for the United States. So that was the fundamental reason that he was writing his book. 
the background to it was this a uncertainty about what technology was actually going to do and many critics of Maham would say that he was not particularly good on technology actually and that he didn't sort of anticipate the shifts that would happen with with the advent of really good submarines for example and um, so that was one issue and the other issue was simply trying to underline how important it was for the United States to develop its maritime power. What do you think would be were the impacts of uh, Jean Nicole on French readiness for World War One? Like, let's talk about the period from at the height of Jean Nicole when it was popular in France, and then just broadly leading up to World War One. Um, I don't think that it had um, particularly adverse consequences uh, compared to other things that determined um, French uh, naval effectiveness, if you like. I think the major problem for the French Navy was Alsace-Lorraine, was the fact that there was so much emphasis on somehow coming up with an answer to the German army rather than the German Navy, if you like. So much emphasis on that, that that's what the major focus of strategy was. Um, which, as the German threat seemed to rise, if you like, the, the kind of global maritime issue um, seemed to not exactly decline, but it, it wasn't quite so salient in uh, the makings, uh, making of decisions. So effectively, I think the French Navy, uh, after a period of uncertainty about which direction it should go in that reflected its, the strategic uncertainty of the country as a whole, buckled down and produced effectively a, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but a second-rate Navy that would principally be focused on um, matters in, in the Mediterranean um, and to deal with um, Austria in, in particular and, and maybe Italy too, depending on, on which way uh, that particular cat jumped. So, um, you know, that was their major focus and that obviously did not have quite the sort of strategic weight of, of the German threat across Alsace-Lorraine. And, and that was the principal thing that um, limited, if you like, uh, the role of the French Navy in the First World War, rather than any consequence of, of or thoughts of the, the Jeunicole. I don't think the Jeunicole actually had that much impact um, on the effectiveness of the French Navy in, in the First World War compared to these other things. Yeah, I found in a lot of the readings about Jean-Nicole that um, people are awesomely apologetic or they're staunch critics <laughs> and it seems to be, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, the black or white fallacy, but that's kind of where it seems to seems to sit. And some of your comments I've found quite mm. heartening about how the torpedo boats themselves, some of the concepts of the... Jean-Nicole were not actually uh, a, f a failure. They actually presented valid valid strategic problems for other navies. Mm. And I guess that actually brings me to the reason for our name. So mm. I've had multiple people ask, oh, why why have you called the organisation Jean-Nicole after a failed French naval strategy? <laughs> it's more than a literal uh, term. So it's about what it represents, I guess. So it was a small group of young naval officers, not all young, but 
naval officers who wanted to innovate and try and think about problems in a different way. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't successful for them in achieving what they wanted to achieve, you know, basing their whole their whole um, naval yeah. strategy on one adversary. However, the point still stands about what can be achieved in the innovation and what it can actually contribute. I actually did read an article by the Canadian Navy's Hugh Canuel from uh, the Naval War College Review where he actually criticised some of the commentators on Jean Nicole who um, compare the issues faced by Britain in that 19th century mm. with the United States today, but yeah. they just replaced Germany with China as the rising competitor. Uh, to what extent do you agree with his view or, or that view? Yeah, I, I think that is a genuine issue. Um, it's not a new issue by any manner of means. It's a, a constant problem. If you identify the proximate threat, you focus too much on it, you always stand in danger, if you like, of neglecting the, the threat that you don't anticipate. And the, the historical track record of, of countries being able to determine what is, in fact, going to turn out to be the major threat is, is pretty spotty, let, let, let's face it. So the, the, the wise approach, if you like, is to try and deal with as many contingencies as you can. And that is a fundamental rationale for the balanced fleet. It's pro providing as many sort of options for your leaders, strategic options, as you can possibly imagine, and to use technology to do that. Um, but an essential part of that process is is the ability, and I, I completely agree with, 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 with the comments that you made about what, you know, the justification for calling yourselves a journey call, is that you do need to think outside the box, if you like. You do need constantly to take in aboard the idea that there might be something new happening out there that you need to respond to seriously, and uh, not to close your mind to the prospect of alternatives, if, if you like, and to take innovation and all-round preparedness, if you like, um, very seriously, not to focus on one major adversary, not to focus so exclusively on one form of naval warfare that you, you neglect others that might very well happen. So, yeah. yeah. And I'm speaking um, from an Australian perspective here as well. And so as I digest these ideas and readings on Jonah Cole, I also think, okay, a balanced fleet for a small to medium Navy. Do you have any comments or suggestions on how to ensure you have a balanced fleet while your population and therefore your Navy, therefore your expenditure, defence expenditure is small? Yeah, I, I don't think the problem for the small or the medium Navy is actually any different from the big Navy. <laughs> um, it's a problem um, and there's no getting away from it that, you know, that if you were able to identify a single threat and deal with that, the answer you could come up with on the money that you've got available would probably be better if you focus exclusively on that threat. But that is a very dangerous procedure because it assumes that you can predict the future, if you like, and so reliably that you neglect everything else that might happen. And time and time and time again, countries have been caught by surprise, by circumstances, by things that they hadn't anticipated um, that nonetheless happen. And, you know, 
you simply have to try and maintain as many options as you can, but it's a balance. And there's no avoiding the choices that you have to make are sometimes very painful. If you um, think, you know, we're going to focus, you know, in, in, in America's case, uh, let, let's say, we're going to focus absolutely on, de on dealing with China and we're not going to bother about what happens in the Gulf. You know, who knows what might happen in the Gulf and what the consequences of, of, of that might be. Um, it's a dilemma and there's no avoiding that dilemma. And I, I don't think, as I go, go back to the point I started with, that the, you know, small or medium navies have a bigger problem in that regard than the bigger navy does. And because after all, um, it's not the number of ships that matters. It's the balance between the commitments that you've got on the one hand and your resources on the other. And... Um, the only difference between a, a, a big navy and a medium navy or a small navy is the size of its commitments, if you like. And the big navy has huge commitments and a huge fleet, but it's still the balance between those two resources and commitment. Whereas a medium navy um, has a smaller range of contingencies, has a smaller range of commitments and a smaller range of resources to meet those commitments. It's a gap between commitments and resources that makes a difference. That's where the errors come, not in being medium, small or, or um, a superpower navy, if you like. So I, th I, you know, it's not very helpful, but it does seem to me to be completely unavoidable. You cannot avoid these strategic dilemmas. And everybody, big, small, medium, are all in the process of trying to back as many horses in the race as they can successfully do. Um, always bearing in mind that some horses are, you know, more likely than others, <laughs> if you like. And that's why people still bet on horses. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thank you so much for your comments on the Jean Nicole. That um, brings us to a close of the main portion of the podcast series. I really enjoyed your insights. I found them very valuable and um, I just loved your cogent analysis. I think our listeners will as well. Now, to finish up on our podcast, some of our uniformed and defence industry leaders may be familiar with the term Soldiers 5, which is a succinct briefing style that's used in the Army. Here at Je Nicole, we are going to live up to the translation of our name, the Young School, and do something a little juvenile but still intellectually relevant and start what we're calling the Sailors 3. So that's all podcasts will end on this maritime alternative to the Soldiers 5 short brief. So each podcast guest will be asked the same three questions for our listeners to get to know them. It'll stimulate some discussion uh, after each episode and the novel format will appeal to some of our emerging industry leaders while still being intellectually relevant. So the three questions we'll ask each episode, I'll quickly give you a rundown for our listeners. The first one is our guest favourite or a most remarkable military platform that's in service or was. Our second one is the most interesting emerging technology at any stage of development. And our third one is the wild card where our guests can choose between making a prediction for the future of military operations or technologies, a book that they encourage emerging maritime leaders to read or a tip for emerging maritime leaders. So soldiers five out, sailors three in. Jeff, are you <laughs> For our first question, what is a 
your favorite or a remarkable military platform that's in service now or has been in history? Yeah, I, I thought about this. Um, it's an interesting question um, because, as I say, my starting point is always the balanced fleet. But you have to think not so much about the platform, but you have to think about the fleet as a, um, as a whole. Um, but nonetheless, um, if backed into a corner and demanded, you know, at the point of a gun, what is, what is the best platform um, to come up with um, that's most interesting, I think I would go for the light carrier. Um, I think the light carrier has a range, provides a range of options at what you might call affordable cost. And it's a good investment. And I think that the current debate, for example, about, you know, carriers, um, are they so vulnerable in the face of new technology that we shouldn't invest in them? You know, carrier killing, ballistic missiles and all of that um, is such an interesting debate that I think it kind of underlines the versatility and the ability of a a platform that is within reach um, of most navies to a, a greater or lesser extent in some form that I think is, 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 is something I, I would emphasize. The fact that at the moment, the United States with its, um, you know, with its huge resources um, is thinking seriously about moving a little bit away from a major focus on what you might call the super carriers like the Ford class uh, towards lighter vessels. I think it's sort of indicative in, 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 in that respect. And so, you know, my, my option would be to go for the light carrier because I think it represents a good return on investment in the terms of providing a, a lot of flexibility. And I would argue that's always been the case. If you look back at the Second World War, you can see how valuable the light carrier was in one of the key um, battles, uh, campaigns rather, uh, of the Second World War, the anti-submarine campaign. Um, and also it's tremendous, their tremendous role in, in the direct defense of amphibious operations and all that sort of thing. So it, it seems to me that light carrier is a, is, is a good horse in this particular race, let's say. Awesome. I, I love the argument. Uh, and we'll move on to our second question now. So what is the most interesting emerging technology in your personal view at it can be at any stage of development? I think that's another one. That's There are so many options out there, so many candidates for this kind of thing. Um, I'm uh, like, I think I'm inclined to go for cyber, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and I think my reason for saying that is that this presents um, two different kinds of challenges that have to be taken very seriously by anybody designing a balanced fleet. The first challenge, of course, is the fact that you may be able to secure your strategic objectives by the use of cyber capacities of one form or another without actually having recourse to the use of conventional military forces and lethal force and all of that um, to start with at all. But it, it might actually be an alternative um, to military forces. Now, you know, military forces obviously not like that idea very much, but it, it's something that needs to be thought about seriously. 
Um, and I think that is an interesting issue that strategists do need to take seriously. That, you know, war in a sense of the use of lethal force is under challenge as a way of securing strategic objectives um, because of cyber, uh, that it, it wasn't 20 years ago. And I think that's something that needs to be taken seriously. So that's one reason. The second reason why I think it's um, really interesting is, is obviously that cyber is so central to military op operations anyway. And, you know, if you if you read um, books like, um, you know, Pete Singer's Ghost Fleet, for example. That's a fantastic book. Yeah, um, it's 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 a good sort of underlining of the fact that it may turn out to be the decisive weapon, the decisive prerequisite. And if one side gets a secure advantage um, in some kind of cyber operations, it might pull apart, if you like, its op opposition before even kind of up before the fighting begins if you like um, but nonetheless it, it's such an impact it's going to have such an impact on um, military operations that it needs to be taken very seriously so I, th I think for those two reasons first of all that cyber might be might be seen by some as an alternative to military conventional military operations and secondly cyber is so essential to the successful conduct of military conventional military operations these days for both those reasons i think i would say that cyber is 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 top of the pops if you like in terms of uh, technological innovations we need to think seriously about great thanks for that and moving on to our final question is the wild card so that's either a <laughs> prediction a book or a tip so you have options here um which one are you going to pick, Jeff? I'm going I'm to I'm gonna cheat. It's a bit like, um, you know, Desert Island Discs in, on, on the BBC, where so many people say, well, actually, I want two books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, effectively, I'm, going to, I'm a historian, um, and I think that almost any history book um, is worth reading for the questions that it throws up. So um, I would counsel everybody interested in the future to look at the naval past if you like um, not in the ex hope of finding answers but in the hope of finding the questions that they ought to be thinking about so i thoroughly approve of, of this outfit who starts off with the proposition well let's look at the journey coal uh, let's look at new ideas and, and and let's sort of try and extrapolate them into the future so i think that you know almost any history book is something i would underline the importance of reading um but as i say to get the questions rather than to get the answers uh more precisely i would recommend people to read a book that's just appeared by ian orbina called i think it's called the outlaw ocean and uh, this is a book about um, something that we haven't talked about at all, um, but it's about maintaining good order at sea. It's about what's actually happening on the ocean today. Um, and it doesn't talk about, you know, what the Chinese are up to or what the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Navy are doing or anything like that. It's all about maritime crime um, in its various forms. And I think uh, conventional naval officers with a principal focus on war fighting and all the rest of it needs to read that book because it reminds them that an awful lot of things are going out 
on at sea that they also need to think about seriously and ought to be part of dealing with. Because if they don't, not only does this mean a lot of humanitarian distress and all the rest of it, but also it's a, a kind of recipe for chaos. And one thing that the international globalization sea-based trading system um, has to avoid is chaos at sea. And Ian Orbina makes a strong case, maybe too strong. I'm not saying that he's right um, about everything he says. Um, but nonetheless, um, I think he comes up with a whole series of worrying things that ought to worry anybody whose business is about what happens at sea, um, including people who are a sort of deep specialists in the various disciplines of war fighting. So I'd, I'd, I'd recommend Ian Orbina's book the outlaw ocean i actually haven't seen um that one come out so i'm going to add it to my goodreads list now so thank you for that i'll uh, tick that onto onto the growing list well thank you so much for participating in our sailors three i know it's really difficult to ask professionals such as yourself to narrow down to one answer um which is kind of what we're trying to achieve <laughs> we're trying to stimulate discussion but also make you squirm a little bit but we um, applaud your good humour and um, thank you very much for your insights and for joining us here today at Jean Nicole. It's been a pleasure having you. Ah, pleasure talking to you and good luck with you. I thoroughly approve. <laughs> thank you for listening to Jean Nicole Pod. Stay in contact with us through Jean Nicole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeanicole.com. <laughs>